You may want to feel confident that when a major corporation like Boeing assures you that it will clean up its radiologically toxic site at the Santa Susana Field Laboratory, only 40 miles from downtown Los Angeles, well, you assume they're going to clean it up. But then an activist reads the fine print buried in Boeing's over 1,000-page report and tells you that she has discovered... In 2015, Boeing produced some cancer risk assessment reports. And what we found, with the help of experts, was that in some areas of the site, if people live there, there was a 9 in 10 cancer risk. And only, yes, and only a 5 in 10 cancer risk after Boeing's proposed cleanup. The EPA goal was 1 in a million. So when you hear something like that, you have to gasp, because you know that you are in the seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, a nuclear story that hits a little too close to home for me. The Santa Susana Field Laboratory in the hills of Simi Valley, just outside Los Angeles and freeway close to where I live. We talk with Denise Duffield of Physicians for Social Responsibility LA on Boeing's dirty site, dirty tricks, and attempt to leave the supposed cleanup dirty enough to give a lot of people cancer. All hands on deck for this one. We need all the support we can get. And we start a new monthly feature this week, Fukushima Update with Simply Info's Nancy Faust. Not only the Fukushima news, but context and continuity, so we can understand the big picture in the small details of what's happening at the site of the worst nuclear disaster in the history of our planet. Plus, we'll have nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than there was room for in the news this week with all the horrid things that have been happening around the world. But all of our news will be coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, October 3rd, 2017, and here is the week's nuclear news from a different perspective starting with the U.S., where on Friday, September 29, Energy Secretary Rick Perry authorized up to $3.7 billion, that's billion with a B, in taxpayer-backed loan guarantees to finish building the last remaining new nuclear plant under construction in this country. The loan is to Southern Company's Vogel plant in Georgia, and it's on top of $8.3 billion in previous federal loan guarantees, 
for the troubled $25 billion nuclear plant. If or when the project goes belly up, U.S. taxpayers will be on the hook to bail out Southern Company and its partners with a record-breaking $12 billion. New nukes make so little economic sense that the Bogle project is both the first new nuclear power plant to be licensed and begin construction in the United States in more than three decades, according to the Department of Energy news release, and the last nuclear plant under construction in the U.S., as Bloomberg reported. At the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant in Carlsbad, New Mexico, this country's only repository for low-to-mid-level transuranic World War II weapons waste, Large blocks of salt rock are expected to collapse inside a room containing six irradiated vehicles, each holding gasoline. The room is packed with radioactive waste, and the entrance has been sealed to prevent workers from entering. Sounds like the plot of a low-budget thriller to me, but it is true. It is expected to be the fifth rockfall event in the last year in an area of the underground storage facility where maintenance has been neglected since a waste drum exploded on Valentine's Day 2014. The accident released radiation into parts of the waste facility and closed the site for nearly three years. The accident released radiation into the general environment, and now all workers in the area must wear protective clothing and respirators because of the existing contamination. This has severely restricted the amount of work that can take place underground at WIP, and it is not expected that the facility will ever recover. Don Hancock with the Southwest Research and Information Center in Albuquerque and a regular guest on Nuclear Hot Seat, said that WIP should be taking more measures to protect workers. He said, I expect more problems. You have a dangerous situation, and you have a contractor who has demonstrated that they are not capable of operating this facility safely. In Seabrook, New Hampshire, just 40 miles north of Boston, Town officials have announced that they believe the plans for evacuation in place in case of an emergency at the nearby Seabrook Nuclear Power Station are properly vetted by state and federal officials and they don't need to make any changes. This despite whistleblower Stephen B. Conley Sr., head of the group We the People and a local activist, stated, I want a hearing called by the NRC for first responders to have an opportunity to testify whether they believe Seabrook Nuclear Plant can be evacuated timely and safely during the summer months, including July 4 and Labor Day. Maggie Gunderson of Fairwinds Energy Education said on Nuclear Hot Seat Number 325 from September 15, quote, In the evaluations that Arnie Gunderson and I and Fairwinds have done, there is not one reactor that we know of anywhere in the world that has an adequate evacuation plan. Across the pond, to where the European Commission is set to relax import restrictions on rice from Fukushima Prefecture that were imposed after the 2011 nuclear disaster. The import curbs could be eased as early as this year and prompt other countries, including major markets like China, to follow suit. The EU is also expected to remove restrictions on some seafood products from Iwate, Miyagi, and other prefectures. And from Akita Prefecture, they will abolish all curbs on rice. 
Meanwhile, the U.S. on September 22nd decided to allow imports of milk and dairy products from Fukushima, Iwate, Miyagi, Tochigi, and Gunma prefectures without inspection certificates stating they are free of radioactive materials. Over to Japan and our new monthly feature, Fukushima Update with Nancy Faust. Nancy is communications manager and research team member at simplyinfo.org. It's a not-for-profit research collective that holds and manages the world's largest public archive of data on the Fukushima disaster. Here at Nuclear Hot Seat, we have appreciated Nancy's thorough knowledge and keen insights, especially in recent weeks with our hurricane coverage. And she's the person I turn to when I want to actually understand what's happening at Fukushima. In this new feature, she will provide us with context and continuity in understanding what is and is not happening on the site and around Japan. We start Nuclear Hot Seat's Fukushima update with the basics. Let's take a look initially at the status of the three melted-down reactors at Fukushima. What is the current status of the cleanup at Unit 1? The cleanup at Unit 1 has seen some significant delays since the start of the project, but it's recently run into some new delays. They've been trying to remove the debris from the refueling floor. As they got through the first layer of debris, they started running into problems. They're finding that the dust, as they're cleaning up, kind of alights a bit more than they thought it was going to. They use a series of vacuum cleaners and water spray to try to keep the dust down. But even with that, they've been running into problems. So it's very much stop and start work to begin with. What they found recently is there's these large concrete slabs that go over the reactor well on the refueling floor. As they got down lower into the levels of debris and were able to get a better look at them, they discovered that a couple of them are broken and cracked. This creates a big problem because these slabs are really large and heavy. And under normal conditions, they're able to grab these with these built-in cleats inside the concrete slabs with a crane, and then they lift them off. But now what they're finding is these big slabs are broken into pieces, so they're going to have to find ways to securely grab onto these pieces of concrete and then safely lift them off. What makes this even more complicated is as they do this, concrete pulverizes into fine dust, but all this fine dust is radioactive. So they don't want this dust blowing off into the wind. Is there a cover on the Unit 1 building so that it does not go out into the greater environment? No, right now there is no cover on Unit 1. The cover building people had seen in photos in previous years has been taken apart and removed so that they can use larger overhead cranes to reach in and do the cleanup work. So this is a risk they end up with when, you know, as they're trying to kind of control things and, you know, move forward with getting the buildings kind of cleaned up and torn apart, is they didn't develop a way that they could put a cover over this and do the work. So this is kind of this risky window of time where they're working on it without any sort of containment cover. Do we have any records or any readings of what the contamination might be in the immediate area? They do a couple of things. One is they take, they've been taking samples of the debris and then like environmental radiation readings near you know, the piles of debris that they're going to be working on. Some of this debris is fairly radioactive. So it is of significant concern. 
what they use to try to determine if any of this is blowing off site is they have a series of dust monitors around the outside perimeter of the plant. But these are not always a good indicator of if something is blowing off site or not. When they were doing similar work on Unit 3, these dust monitors were not going off. But what tipped them off that there was contamination blowing off site was a number of workers waiting for a bus ended up contaminated. And then there was dust found miles and miles away on a farm that showed up on a dust monitor some academics were running and they were able to match the dates that the dust showed up in these academic dust monitors to the dates that there was dust releases at Unit 3 in Fukushima. So those dust monitors around the site are not exactly an ideal way of making sure nothing's blowing off site. And have they done anything about the dust that has managed to migrate off site? Is there anything that can be done about it? The dust that they discovered had blown off of Unit 3. Um, this became an issue after the work was all done, that these academics had found this evidence, and then it took a while to get this into the press and back and forth with TEPCO to the point they finally admitted that, yeah, there was some dust releases off-site. This made them stop work and then kind of reassess how they were going to do Unit 1 as far as using water sprays and vacuums and these other countermeasures to try to prevent it. But there really is no monitoring, independent monitoring, that's able to detect. It's, we're really kind of at TEPCO's mercy on this, that things are not blowing off site. Let's move along to Unit 2. What is the situation there? Unit 2 has also seen a delay in refueling floor work. They had had a timeline set that they were going to be removing spent fuel by a certain date. They've now bumped that about three years. Two things they cited. One was they said the radiation levels on the refueling floor were higher than they had anticipated, and they're causing problems with cleanup work in there. There's also an issue with they're beginning to rip the roof off of Unit 2. What this entails is they're taking the roof tiles off right now using robotic heavy equipment. They will eventually be removing all of those layers of the roof. And as they get down into those layers of the roof, you start seeing that same risk you're seeing at Unit 1, where dust and materials can blow off site. And they, ha again, have no containment system for this. Moving on to Unit 3. If there is no fuel left in Unit 3's reactor vessel, where is the melted fuel? Where did it go? That's the million-dollar question. TEPCO released last week the final muon scan. These were these kind of X-ray-type scans they're doing of the reactor vessels that have melted down. Their preliminary results said there was no fuel in the reactor vessel, and their final said the same thing. They've sent a robot into containment to look for fuel, and it did find what looks like melted fuel below the reactor vessel. But what we don't know is the quantity of fuel. If the entire quantity of fuel is not sitting there in containment right below the reactor vessel, then it has gone somewhere else. It could have burned down into the concrete foundation of the reactor building. It could have migrated somewhere else. But where that somewhere else is is kind of the million-dollar question. We don't know. What we have done is we go back and we look at where it's not. And you go by a process of elimination. We know it's not in the Taurus room. We know it's not in other parts of the reactor building where they have looked. 
So this is the big question now with Unit 3 is where is all of the fuel? They know where some of it is, but they need to quantify, is it all in this place? If not, where did it go? How much of that may have been dispersed into the general environment when the explosions happened? That we don't know. There's some speculation that fuel could have been ejected during the explosions in Unit 3. There have been fuel particles found in the evacuation zone and further away from Fukushima. So we know some microscopic bits of the reactor fuel have been dispersed to the environment. But which reactor they came from and when and how they were dispersed is still kind of an open question. So, I mean, there's that potential that some of this could have been released to the environment. And TEPCO did make an admission early on that there was fuel ejected from Unit 3. What they didn't say was how or how much. Uh, It may have just been that they were finding these fuel particles around the plant site as they were responding to the disaster. So this is kind of a big open question with Unit 3. Regarding the water that is stored on site, the contaminated water, TEPCO announced plans, I think it's about a couple of months ago now, to definitely release the tritium-contaminated water it's been storing on site at Fukushima into the Pacific Ocean. But then they were forced to back down, or at least say they were backing down from that announced plan, because of the national and international outcry and pushback against it. What is the status of the contaminated water and that plan, as far as we know? There's water that's released from the plant on a regular basis, but this is groundwater that they pump up in an effort to try to control the levels within the area by the reactors. They consider this water slightly different because it's groundwater that they have pumped up from wells around the reactor buildings. This is different than water that they consider to have come from the reactors. This water that they pump up as groundwater is still frequently contaminated, and they do run it through the various processing systems they have on site to try to remove contamination. But this water can contain tritium because there's tritium leaking into the groundwater. This water is released on a regular basis from the plant. Then there's water from the reactor buildings. This water is more contaminated. It is still run through these processes, but then it's stored in tanks. And this is the water that's been a big debate between the local environmental groups, the fishing unions, and TEPCO is what to do with this water. And this water would obviously have higher levels of tritium in it. And has there been any follow-up from TEPCO after they made their announcement and then back down from their announcement on plans to release it? They have not said anything recently about uh, what they plan to do. They seem to be, again, at a stalemate with the fishing unions, and for obvious reasons, because if they start dumping more contaminated water into the ocean, this creates even more concern about contaminated fish, and that raises concerns that, that this is going to impact their ability to sell what they haul. What about the infamous and seeming never-ending series of progresses and then fallbacks on the frozen wall, which I usually refer to as the slushy? (laughs) The frozen wall has been making some slow progress, but TEPCO admitted a few months ago that they can make some readings how the wall is working if it's freezing in an area, and they use temperature sensors to tell whether it's freezing or not. They really don't have any way to 100% prove that the wall is plugging everything and that there's not somewhere where they're not reading 
that you know that it could still be allowing groundwater to migrate out. There is an area near Unit 4. It froze initially, and now it's been struggling to stay frozen. It's also known that that area had an underground stream in it before they built the plant. So this area may just have higher groundwater flow through it, which is causing this area to, you know, to struggle to stay frozen. They've also been working on freezing the last land side section of the wall. They had been leaving a section on the land side open to allow groundwater to flow in because they had a concern that if they completely closed everything off, it might allow the groundwater levels to drop significantly. And then this would allow the really contaminated water that's in the reactor building basements to then leak out into the groundwater, which is something they wanted to avoid. As they've been gradually freezing the land side wall, they saw that the groundwater levels were not dropping to a point they were concerned about, so they're now freezing this last section of the landside wall. And if they can get this to freeze, then it would be, in TEPCO's estimation, solid. But again, they admit they can't tell 100%. Nancy, your information, as always, is clear, concise, easy to follow, and absolutely terrifying. <laughs> For that reason, I want to thank you so much for joining on with the official team here at Nuclear Hot Seat for, at minimum, a monthly Fukushima update. Great. Thanks for having me. Nancy Faust with the Fukushima update for Nuclear Hot Seat. In additional news from Japan, radioactive water could possibly have leaked from the reactors at Fukushima Daiichi for months by error, according to TEPCO. What, we thought you planned it? Tokyo Electric Power Company said it erroneously configured gauges used to measure groundwater levels in six wells near the three melted-down Fukushima reactors. The false readings, which have been relied upon since April 19 and were discovered only this week, meant that groundwater levels were actually more than two feet below what TEPCO was measuring. The company said this mistake caused groundwater levels to fall below the limit set to prevent radioactive water from flowing out of the plant and into the nearby wells at least once in May. And a scientific research team has sampled eight beaches in Japan within 60 miles of Fukushima Daiichi's ruins and found high levels of radioactive cesium discharged from the 2011 accident in the brackish groundwater beneath the beaches. These are previously unsuspected places where radioactive material from the disaster has accumulated. The sands took up and retained radioactive cesium in 2011, and have been slowly releasing it back into the ocean ever since. Oh, do tell that to the surfers who are planning to surf off the coast of Chiba for the 2020 Olympics. The scientists from the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution and Kanazawa University in Japan stated in their study in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences this new and unanticipated pathway for the storage and release of radionuclides into the ocean should be taken into account in the management of coastal areas where nuclear power plants are situated. To which Nuclear Hot Seat would add, yeah, shut them all down now. And now... Nuclear Hot Seat, Nuclear Hot Seat, Nuclear...
clear hot seed. None that sound a week. In Ehime Prefecture in Japan, a public relations facility set up to publicize the safety of the Ikata nuclear power plant still insists that nuclear plants can withstand a tsunami of any height. What did? 2011 never happened for them. Are they in a time warp? Now, fortunately, the contents on display will finally be updated before the end of the fiscal year because, as one prefectural government official put it, some of the information does not square with the current situation. Current? It happened six and a half years ago, dude. One question asks. What would happen to a nuclear power plant if a large earthquake should strike? Multiple choice: one, continue to generate power; two, the reactor automatically stops to prevent any form of accident; and three, it would be destroyed if a large earthquake struck. The second choice is considered the correct answer when the third is what actually happened. They even offer the reassurance. The nuclear plant is a sturdy building that would not budge an inch in an earthquake, typhoon, or tsunami. Guess again. Six and a half years and counting. Just change it. And that's why this week, the public relations propaganda arm of the Ikata nuclear power plant is this week's nuclear hot seat. None that sound a week. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment, but first, Nuclear Hot Seat needs your support—yes, yours—to meet its monthly financial obligations. Be it a one-time donation or a monthly sustaining donation of any amount, it all helps to keep the flow of honest, verifiable nuclear information up and running and out to you, the listenership. Even five dollars helps. That's the equivalent of a cup of coffee and a nice tip to a barista. So why don't you buy Nuclear Hot Seat a cup of coffee? That will help keep the program running. Give what you can by going to nuclearhotseat.com and click on the big red donate button. Or if you want to buy the show that metaphoric cup o coffee every month, you can quickly set up a monthly five dollar donation by clicking on the big green donate button. Know that whatever you can do to help at this time, I'm grateful that you're listening. I'm grateful that you care, and I'm just grateful. Just because San Onofre has shut down does not mean that Los Angeles is without its ongoing nuclear nightmares. Not only did the Porter Ranch methane leak release countless amounts of radioactive radon gas that rolled downhill into the San Fernando Valley. We have the toxic legacy waste of the Santa Susana Field Laboratory, site of a partial nuclear meltdown in 1959, and so much more radiological contamination as I've just learned. To find out more, we spoke with Denise Duffield, who is associate director of Physicians for Social Responsibility Los Angeles, where she directs PSRLA's Nuclear Threats Program. This is one that advocates for health protective policies related to nuclear weapons, nuclear energy, and radiation regulations. She also leads PSRLA's efforts to ensure a proper cleanup of the Santa Susana Field Laboratory. It's been quite a journey. Denise Duffield, 
So great to have you joining us today on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's start out with a little bit of background on the site itself. What was the Santa Susana Field Laboratory and what kind of work was done there? The Santa Susana Field Laboratory is a former nuclear and rocket engine testing facility established in the late 40s by the Atomic Energy Commission uh, as a testing facility for nuclear reactor development and experiments. They chose the site because at the time they thought it was away from populated areas and they knew the work that they would be doing up there was dangerous. Of course, um, over the course of the decades that it was in operation, the population increased and now we have about half a million people that live within 10 miles of the site. There also was uh, tens of thousands of rocket engine tests that occurred at the site as well. And for folks who maybe don't know where it's located, it's in the hills between the San Fernando and Simi Valley. Some of the um, cities near it include Simi Valley, Canoga Park, West Hills, Chatsworth, Westlake Village, Agoura Hills, Oak Park, Thousand Oaks. Those are just some of the cities that surround the lab. And you're not quite 30 miles away from I live, so I take this particular nuclear accident very personally. How did Santa Susana Field Lab become contaminated, and what kind of contaminants are present there still? Santa Susana is grossly polluted from a variety of reasons. The, there were 10 nuclear reactors at the site at one time, four of which had accidents. It's the, the 1959 partial nuclear meltdown is the one that most people are familiar with, if they're familiar with it at all. And that was in the summer of 1959. 13 out of 43 fuel rods melted down. Radioactive gases were released straight out into the atmosphere. None of the reactors at Santa Susana had containment domes, not one. And they also had a hot lab uh, at the site, which was for decladding and dissembling irradiated nuclear fuel that was shipped in from around the country. And they had several other nuclear accidents. They had radioactive fires in and around the hot lab. And as I mentioned, three of the other reactors had some accidents as well. In addition, they had open-air burning of both radioactively contaminated components and chemicals. And this went on again for decades. You know, with the tens of thousands of rocket engine tests, that also was what resulted in some of the chemical contamination. The radioactive contamination, we have plutonium-239, we have cesium-137, we have strontium-90, we have tritium. On the chemical side, we have incredible contamination with trichloroethylene or TCE. We have perchlorate, we have dioxins, we have heavy metals. It's a heavily, heavily contaminated site. And it's important for folks to know that these activities really went on for decades and the site's huge. It's, it's uh, 2,800 acres, over 2,800 acres, and it's also an elevation of over 2,000 feet. So despite what Boeing and the toxics agencies say, there is such thing as gravity, and that contamination does come off the site, especially with wind events and rain events and some of the um, unsafe demolition that's happened over there over the years. What kind of warnings have been given to people who are seeking to buy property or buy homes in the area that they may be in a contaminated zone? I understand that, that there is some language for some of the properties in the area 
you know, when they're going to purchase the house that does spell out, you know, you live next to Santa Susana Field Laboratory for renters, that is not the case. But I also have heard people saying, yeah, Ack, I just moved here a year ago. Nobody told me. So I don't know if they didn't have that information presented to them when they were purchasing the house. But I, ha- I do know that it is present for many residences in the area. I know that realtors in California are required to disclose any known defects to any property that they are representing before the point of purchase. Are you saying that there is just this slight amount of languaging in the agreements, or has there been any kind of concerted effort to inform realtors so that they are under force of law to disclose this to any potential buyers? I'm saying there is a clause, but my caveat is is that I don't know that all of the homes in the area have had that. I have somebody who recently sent me one or posted it on Facebook, and I'd be happy to show that to you so you can see exactly what the language looks like. But my understanding is it's not consistent. Um, We have had some realtors attend the SSFL workgroup meetings. But there's not, other than that, been a concerted effort um, to reach them. You, you, one thing that's, that's more outrageous than anything is that the state toxic department, the Department of Toxic Substances Controls, or DTSC, actually denies that harmful contamination got off-site. This is in the face of several independent, multi-year epidemiological studies. We've had studies both for the workers on their exposure to radiation and to chemicals, UCLA studies that found significantly elevated cancer death rates among both the nuclear and the rocket workers. We've also had a a study in 2007 that was funded by the Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry, which found a 60% increase in certain kinds of cancers that increase with proximity to the site. In other words, people who live, you know, within two miles have a high rate of these cancers and those outside of five miles. We also have another multi-year UCLA study that was just looking at the potential for off-site exposures. And it found numerous instances in which contaminants got off-site, off the lab at levels over EPA levels of concern. So despite the fact that the site is on a hill, that they've had lots of violations from the water board, from surface water runoff contaminants, and all of these studies, we still um, have the state agency looking at Boeing studies, and of course, Boeing studies naturally never found anything wrong, that denies this. And it's it's just interesting, because if you spend any time on Facebook, people, particularly in Simi Valley, just know that cancer is a thing. You know, it's, it's a thing there. They also have, Ventura County also has one of the highest rates of breast cancer in the state. And we've had rare pediatric cancers both in 2008 when there was a cluster of children with retinoblastoma, which is a rare eye cancer. And now again, we've got a new parents group calling Parents versus the SSFL, which is finding childhood cancer is rare. And some of the leukemias in particular are rare. And we're finding some, in one case, there's one that there's 100 cases diagnosed in the United States. And there's two children who live very next, live close to each other within Santa Susana with that cancer and that is an outrage, and that is our, you know, the reason that we want the site fully cleaned up, as has been promised to us. Unfortunately, now it appears those promises are being broken. I have a personal investment in this as well, because I know of at least three cancer clusters within families where the kids grew up, who are now my contemporaries, but they grew up 
in that area, not knowing what the accident was. And any time I have given a talk in the greater Los Angeles area and, of course, mentioned Santa Susana Field Lab, inevitably I will get somebody coming to me saying, I grew up, I have my home there, I raised my kids there, and there is this health problem that is unprecedented in my family. Is it possible there's a connection? And I always have to say, yes, there's a very strong possibility. And then I send them to your group in the hopes that they will learn more. Let's get on to the cleanup for this, because this is something that must be cleaned up. Who's responsible for it? Okay, so there's three responsible parties, NASA, the Department of Energy, and Boeing. NASA owns and is responsible for cleaning up part of Area 1 in the site and all of Area 2. This is where the rocket engine testing took place. The Department of Energy leases Area 4, which is where most of the nuclear work occurred. So they're responsible for cleaning up that area as well as the northern buffer zone. The northern buffer zone is what was added to the Santa Susana site after a lawsuit from the Brandeis-Bardeen Institute In 1997, they settled. The lawsuit was, of course, over Santa Susana contaminants coming into their property. So as part of that settlement, Boeing bought an extra piece of their land, and they refer to that as the northern buffer zone, and it has contamination too. So that is the Department of Energy's responsibility. Boeing owns most of the site, and so it's responsible for cleaning up everything else. And again, this is a 2,850-acre site. What has been tried through the years to clean this up? We've had many fits and and starts. There have been some interim measures that haven't really done that much. We had a state law that was passed and signed by the governor, SB 990, which would have required the site to be cleaned up to the most protective standards. Boeing sued over that and uh, ultimately prevailed. We have some real problems with what happened during the course of that lawsuit, the parties responsible for the cleaning up the site are, you know, as I mentioned, NASA, DOE, and Boeing. The entity that oversees the cleanup is the Department of Toxic Substances Control. And that department is extremely troubled, not just Santa Susana, but contaminated sites throughout the country have been let down by DTSC. Uh, there seems to be a good amount of regulatory capture by polluting industries. You know, Boeing has lots of lobbyists, and some of them are close with Governor Brown, and and they also have hired people who used to work at DTSC and Cal EPA, and those folks now come back and lobby their former coworkers. That's called a revolving door. So what happened with the Boeing lawsuit was we had a, a DTSC lawyer who actually waived the right to see Boeing's statements of facts, many of which before they had even seen them. And they were outlandish, and based off of those um, statements, Boeing won its lawsuit. So after that, we had, in 2010, a tremendous victory at the time where NASA and DOE agreed with the Department of Toxic Substances Controls that they would clean up their operational areas to background. And that means that they would look at similar areas and determine what's the naturally occurring radiation, some of which is not natural, is from fallout from nuclear testing, but to make sure that they weren't cleaning up contamination that they weren't responsible for. So basically, anything that was over background, they would clean up. And Boeing refused to sign that, 
and was pushing for a far weaker standard. DTSC at the time in 2010 said, you know, regardless of what happened to the state law, regardless of Boeing not signing the AOCs, we're going to base Boeing's cleanup based off of the current zoning for the site. And the allowable uses include agricultural and rural residential. Those are very protective because they're based off of people living on the land and growing food on the land. So we were happy with that. But what happened is, and this coincided with Governor Brown's administration, the ink was hardly dry on the NASA and DOE agreements, which are called AOCs, Administrative Orders on Consent, when we started to see a reversal in the agency's commitment. For the Boeing property, Boeing said, well, we'll clean up to suburban residential, um, and they had made a big deal out of how their cleanup was going to be much higher than what was required because they intend the site to be open space afterwards. But just this last August, Boeing backed out of even that and said they wanted to clean up to a recreational standard. That is like no cleanup at all. Recreational cleanup standards are based off of people being on the site infrequently. Boeing even told some people on a tour that when they were done, it would be safe to hike there once a week. What does that mean for the people who live near the site 24-7? If you leave that much contamination on site, there's that much contamination, and sure, it'll get diluted some as it comes off the hill, but it's not health protective at all. So what happened just two weeks ago is Department of Toxic Substances Control, or DTSC, has finally released its long-awaited draft environmental impact for the cleanup. From here forward, refer to the draft environmental impact report as the draft EIR or just the EIR. The document that DTSC has put forward is an outrage. It breaks the cleanup agreements with DOE and NASA. It talks about natural attenuation, which means leaving vast amounts of, well, they won't even say how much quantities, cubic yards of soil, to just gradually weaken in their contamination. It's basically called not cleaning it up. They're calling it natural attenuation. That violates the DOE and NASA cleanup agreements. They talk about the same thing for the Boeing property. They do not include the cancer risk information. And this is a key point. In 2015, Boeing produced some cancer risk assessment reports. And what we found with the help of experts, you know, in the page 1,103 in these long documents, was that in some areas of the site, if people live there, there was a 9 in 10 cancer risk. And only, yes, and only a 5 in 10 cancer risk after Boeing's proposed cleanup. The EPA goal was 1 in a million. At other parts of the property, they had a 3 in 10 cancer risk. This was outrageous, and we brought it to the attention of the public. We had a work group meeting about it. We um, had elected officials who wrote to DTSC and said, this cannot stand. For one, Boeing, the polluters shouldn't be able to say how much it's going to clean up. That's the, the government's job. The polluters don't, aren't supposed to be regulating themselves. And so we expressed great concern about this. And they were supposed to continue to do these risk assessments on other parts of the property. That information has been withheld, is not part of this EIR. So without telling people what the risk is going to be from various levels of cleanup, all you're left with is thousands of pages of how damaging the cleanup is going to be to the environment. And this has been Boeing, part of Boeing's greenwashing campaign and part of what DTSC has, has gotten into, too, where 
all they want to talk about are how many trucks, you know, and it's greatly inflated figures, and some of the information is flat out false. But trying to scare the community away from the cleanup, thinking that somehow the cleanup is worse than contamination. That is absurd. That is outrageous. But we have people who, you know, Boeing has been very good at what's called astroturfing or creating front groups. People that several of them who used to work for the responsible parties who repurposed themselves as supposed community members who are putting this information out there. The site's not that contaminated. This is the cleanup is going to be far worse. It's going to moonscape the property. That's not true. The cleanup is happening where the property's already been destroyed, largely. The Native American artifacts are going to be destroyed. Not true. The cleanup agreements protect the Native American artifacts that are there. It's crazy making. And so what we have now is a very, very, very critical period for the cleanup where we need everybody's support. Anybody who wants this site cleans up needs to speak up now. Where can people go and what can they do to be of support at this crucial juncture in the cleanup? I am really glad you asked that question because now is the time. This is the time where we need everybody who cares about this site. And even if you don't live near the site, this is setting a precedent for cleanups throughout the state. The DTSC has a public comment period on its draft environmental impact report, and they've got two hearings coming up. One is this Thursday in Simi Valley from 7 to 9. There's an open house the hour prior to that, but it's at the Grand Vista Hotel, which is 999 Enchanted Way, Simi Valley. And people should go to it if they can, get there a little early, fill out a comment card, say you want to speak, say you want this site fully cleaned up. They're having a second hearing on October 7th, and that one is in Chatsworth. It's from 2 to 5 at the St. John Hughes Church at 91901 Mason Avenue. So if folks can come to those meetings and sign up, take a speaker card, and tell DTSC, you know, your EIR is smoke and mirrors. It, they don't have to say that if they don't want to, but they do need to express that they want the DTSC to keep its promises. We're not asking for something that they haven't already agreed to do, to keep their promises and clean up all the contamination on the site. And if people don't live in Southern California and cannot get to these meetings, is there an action they can take to help support you? There is the ability to submit written public comments as well. And that is, of course, even more important for people who live in Southern California. But the DTSC is accepting written public comments on its draft EIR to December 7th. And what we've done, we meaning all of the groups who work on this, which includes the Rocketdyne Cleanup Coalition, which is largely composed of community members from the site, the SSFL Workgroup, which has been a longstanding public participation group, Physicians for Social Responsibility Los Angeles, which is where I am, Committee to Bridge the Gap, and the Southern California Federation of Scientists are some of the groups that have been working on this. We together launched a new website called ProtectSantaSusanaFromBoeing.com. And on that website, there's a take action button that people can use to submit their comment. Of course, I will be posting all addresses, all URLs, all emails, all any connections at all on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode. Is there any other action 
that we can take to be part of this cleanup, especially if we live here in Southern California? Yes, you can spread the word. That new website, we want to get it going viral. We've got a video on there of former workers telling their tales. Spread the news on Facebook and Twitter, but particularly Facebook. Get on those pages, like those pages, like those posts. The government does look at that. We have great evidence that they pay close attention to our Facebook activity. So you can do that. And you can also call your elected officials, particularly if you live in the area. And we've got links on the new website to help you find who both your U.S. congressional representatives and your California representatives are. Phone calls are important. You know, Boeing has put forth an incredible greenwashing attempt. The reason we made this website is that they had one called protectsantasusanna.com, which was all about trying to get the people to submit comments to DTSC saying that they wanted the weakest cleanup possible. So I think we're up against an incredibly powerful and moneyed polluter with this using some very deceptive tactics. I know that close to the Boeing site, Santa Susana Field Lab, there's an area called Rocky Peak, which is very popular for hiking. It's in the Santa Monica Mountains. Rock climbers like it a lot. Is there any danger, and do there need to be any warnings for people who might want to be recreating in that area? You know, I, I don't feel that I can comment um, with certainty on that area in particular. Um, I haven't seen data from it. It could depend on a wind event. So I I don't feel like I should say anything about that. I can say, however, that I would advise strongly against going on Boeing's hikes and tours of the site. This has been one of the most outrageous things we've seen them do, where they, in an effort to promote the site as open space and talk about all the great accomplishments there, which they don't even use the word nuclear, they have been holding hikes and bus tours of the property. And we're out there to protest And we wear our masks and try to pass out flyers to people, letting them know this site is not cleaned up. They're hiking through the southern buffer zone. That is not far from the burn pits where the open-air burning took place. It's heavily contaminated. At the bus tours, they get out at the site of the former meltdown, and they get out at one of the rocket test stand sites. I should note the headwaters of the L.A. River is at Santa Susana. So this idea of taking people on hikes – Uh, through unremediated property is outrageous. They do make people sign a waiver. They can't sue for anything that should result from this, and and their heirs can't sue. And at the same time, they're also signing over their right for Boeing to use their photos of them hiking through the property as propaganda for open space and not cleaning up the site. So many outrages per square inch on this. I really wouldn't (laughs) know where to start. Any final thoughts on this you'd like to leave us with? This is a struggle that's been going on for over 30 years. We are at an incredibly critical juncture right now. If the community doesn't stand up now, we may have no cleanup at all. So I strongly encourage people, particularly those in Southern California, to come to the meetings, to comment on the EIR, to call their elected officials. And if it's complicated because the site's got a long and stored history, all you need to say is, I want all of that contamination cleaned up like DTSC promised. Denise Duffield, thank you so much for the fight you've been giving for all these years, for your work on behalf genuinely of people and the environment, and for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat.
My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Denise Duffield of Physicians for Social Responsibility, Los Angeles. We'll have links up to the new and authentic activist website, protectsantasusannafromboeing.com, on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 328. We will also post the addresses for this week's hearings with Boeing. As I said before, all hands on deck for that one. Activist shout-out! This Saturday, October 7, marks the start of Keep Space for Peace Week. We covered this in an interview with Bruce Gagnon on Nuclear Hot Seat number 321 of August 15th of this year. Simply put, it's demonstrations literally around the world to keep weapons and nuclear reactors out of space. We will have a link up on the website to the full list of events, and if you want to start one of your own, there's still time to do so. Go to spaceforpeace.org, and that's the number four, not a word. And Josh Cummings of EnviroNews.tv has teamed up with Arnie Gunderson and Fairwinds Energy Education to create a series of videos, short videos, on the various nuclear issues around the world. It's a 15-part mini-series entitled Nuclear Power in Our World Today. And to give you an idea of just one of them, the headline is Dams Place 39 U.S. Reactors in Line of Fire, Fukushima-Style Scenarios Possible. Arnie is clear, concise, and accurate, and if you want to learn the basics and learn them quickly and accurately, this is where to go. Environews.tv, and we will have a link up on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 328. Here's today's final thought. I tried for years without success to land an interviewee to speak on Santa Susana Field Lab for Nuclear Hot Seat. Several times a year, I sent requests by Facebook, Twitter, email, and every request I sent was ignored. I figured the group was moribund, or incompetent, or nobody was home, or whoever was was either arrogant or ignorant. I mean, come on. If you're an anti-nuclear group protesting a local problem, how often do you get an email with the subject line, interview request? I figured they'd jump on it, but nobody did. Now, after today's interview and the revelation that Boeing set up dummy groups of websites and Facebook sites to present their interests disguised as an activist group, I bet I was sending my request to their fake sites. Boeing. How Russian of you. Well, yuck, 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 boys and girls. Party's over. You've had your fun. Now it's my turn. It's not nice to fool Mother Nature, and it's certainly not a good idea to tick off the producer of a program downloaded in 123 countries. Hello to my newest listener in Solomon Islands. And that program is broadcast on its own affiliate network over FCC airwaves. Just a little podcast, you may be thinking. <laughs> you have no idea. But you have been warned. 
This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, October 3, 2017. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, japantimes.co.jp, thinkprogress.org, santafenewmexican.com, and the excellent reporting of Rebecca Moss, abqjournal.com, seacoastline.com, greenaudit.org, nltimes.nl, dailymail.co.uk, fizz.org, asahi.com, spaceforpeace.org, environews.tv, the self-hating cubicle drones who traded their hearts for a paycheck because they didn't have the guts to pursue their own writing dreams, and that's why they write despicable press releases for world nuclear news. The U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission event reports... And a shout-out to the Nuclear Hot Seat listeners and followers who show your love for life on this planet by being the kick-ass defenders of genuine truth and supporters of nuclear awareness that you are. Thanks for gathering at the Nuclear Hot Seat blog site on Facebook. Be sure to stop by if you haven't already. Click like, follow, post, and share. If you know of a broadcast station in your area that would be interested in joining the growing list of broadcast affiliates carrying Nuclear Hot Seat over public airwaves, contact me with their info or have them contact us by sending an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. Theme music written by me, sung by Marilee Weber, accompaniment by John Barnard, recorded at Winslow Court Studio in Hollywood. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. We are copyright 2017, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as proper attribution is provider. And a reminder that if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment to send a donation to NuclearHotSeat.com. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that radioactive nuclear waste is forever, and no one is immune to its impact. So let's stop making it, and let's figure out what we're going to do with the stuff that we've already got. There. You've all had your nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.